We're honored to have you here. And then we have uh, Scott, Heidi, Maverick, and Stephen uh, are here. Uh, yeah, I didn't say last name, but but that, did I? I don't think I did. Uh, the the first the first Wednesday night that uh, your mom and Doug visited, we have prayer meeting and Bible study, and they plop down. We don't get a lot of visitors on Wednesday nights. So that's always exciting. So I walked. I never met Doug before or your mom, and I walked up. And Doug looked at me and said, we're strange. <laughs> I said, yeah, but what's your name? Uh, no. So, uh, yeah, we've, uh, I, I told the Austins that they're, they're kind of famous around here because their mom keep us, keeps us abreast of what's going on. And uh, Stephen, you got a real tough medical issues you're dealing with and we appreciate you being here and you look great. And of course, uh, Scott and Heidi serve our country. Uh, uh, Scott's a, I think the the best helicopter pilot in the United States military, much less the Coast Guard. That's that's just me. Yeah. Um, once upon a time, long time ago, December sixth to be exact, of last year, TBF was in the middle of a delightful discipleship uh, concentration, also known as first hour teaching time, study the book of Acts. But then, on December 13th and December 20th, we did a couple of special Christmas messages. And on December 27th, James did a a wonderful message on the book of Judges and the Christian life. And then, first Sunday in January, I did a message, 2016, Here We Come, the Pogs, Purpose, Objectives, and Goals of TBF. And then, finally, uh, January 11th through last Sunday, we talked about what's a Christian to do when the whole world's falling apart. And we, we talked about what Psalm 11 tells us, and Psalm 73 in the book of Habakkuk. And then last Sunday, we looked at uh, Kyle and uh, Jen Porter's testimony of losing their baby and how God sustained them through that. So nine weeks later, here we are. We're going to reboot our study of the book of Acts and kind of get back on the wagon where we where we fell off. And go ahead and switch that to me, please, David. It's actually working, which is good. So let's go ahead and pray for teachability. Let's pray for teachability. And Scott, we didn't do this just to impress you. Uh, the story of this is, you know, right after 9-11... Uh, a lot of churches started praying for our troops and for our national security and things like that uh, fervently for a couple of weeks, and we did too. And then after a couple of weeks, we kind of stopped emphasizing that and doing that. And then Bob Shallot, who's an amazing World War II veteran, walked up to me and kind of challenged me. You know, if it's important enough to do it the last couple of weeks, it's probably important enough to do it every week. So uh, because we understand the sacrifices that these people make, and because uh, we're very appreciative of our First Amendment rights to do this openly, knowing that in much of the world, if you're in Sudan or Myanmar or Saudi Arabia, you got to be so deep underground. Uh, all you can do is meet in little Bible studies. Hope the government doesn't find out about you. So uh, we pray for our troops and our teachability and our peace officers and firefighters every Sunday as we get started. And uh, Ken, would you... Pray for our, our troops and for our teachability this morning. Amen. Uh, 
Sonia Skinner sent me a graphic that's been going around the internet. You may have seen it, but it said something like, uh, on this Sunday, Christians should be just as excited about church as they are about the Super Bowl. Which means that if your pastor actually makes uh, any good points this Sunday, after the service, you should pour Gatorade on him. But uh, I've worked hard on this message, and there are no good points, so I don't have to worry about that. That's for sure. Uh, uh, and in lieu of a, a top seven list, let me tell you a, a joke that our Israeli guide told us one year. There were two elderly Israeli citizens eating lunch in Jerusalem, and the guy said, Man, you know, I praise Yahweh uh, that uh, Israel exists since 1948, uh, and that we've won every single war we've had to fight because... Uh, if we lose a war, we're done as a country. But we have lots of problems. Uh, our infrastructure is very bad. Our roads aren't very good. Our grid's not very good. Our plumbing, our sewage, not very good. And I've decided that I have a solution to that. And his friend number two says, well, what's the solution? And the first guy says, I think we should declare war against the United States. And the second guy goes, what do you mean, Hiram? I mean, good night. I mean, the United States has been the only stable ally we have, and they've done so much. And how in the world could how could you dare say we ought to declare war against the United States? And the first guy said, "Well, think about it. You know, uh, World War II, Germany and Japan declared war against the United States. The United States won the war. When it was over, they moved in, redid our infrastructure, took care of all the roads, the sewers, the sewers, everything, fixed it perfectly, and and so that's what we should do." And the second guy says, yeah, you know, that, that might work. And then he said, no, wait a minute, it's a problem. And the first guy said, what's the problem? The second guy says, what if we win? <laughs> so let's talk about the who, when, and why of the book of Acts. Uh, I'm thinking about a passage in Colossians chapter 4. I had you turn anywhere and act. Go to Colossians. The human author of this book is a medical doctor by the name of Luke, Luke M.D. Now, the doctrine of inspiration tells us that God the Holy Spirit superintended, he didn't dictate it, uh, but he superintended the human authors of Scripture such that they composed and recorded without error the exact message God wanted as gnomic Scripture in the words of the original manuscripts. And we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts Although Luke doesn't credit himself in Acts or Luke, early church history confirms he's the author. And Blanche, how do we know Luke was an MD? Well, I'm sure you know this, but in Colossians 4.14, at the end of a letter Paul's writing, during the period Luke would have been writing the book of Acts, he says this in mentioning some of the people he's working with. He says, Luke... The beloved physician, that's how we know he's a physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. And he goes on from there. Now, uh, it's really cool because if you go back to Acts, so we know he's a, a medical doctor, go to Acts chapter 16, verse 10. Uh, Acts was written by a human author and a divine author. God the Holy Spirit's the divine author which is why Jesus can say about like Psalm 110 that David wrote, 
why did David in the Spirit say X, Y, or Z in Psalm 110? Because the Spirit was superintending him. But the thing about the book of Acts, Luke doesn't just write about events the, the apostles did in this book. He actually was an eyewitness to some of them. You've got a couple of large sections in the book of Acts that are called the we, W-E passages, because he goes from referring to Paul and Barnabas doing stuff, they, third person, to using first person. And when you're in Acts 16, of course, we're in the city of Philippi, as you might remember, uh, we read this, or move in that direction. Uh, when he had seen the vision, Paul, the Macedonian vision, Immediately, we, W-E, not they, but we, the human author Luke is right, right there in the middle of this action, sought to go into northern Greece, Macedonia, so they could get to Philippi, uh, because we believe God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so putting out the sea from Troas, we, not they, but we, Harmony, he's referring to himself, he's actually there, ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And in fact, you've got several large passages like that where Luke is not just writing under inspiration, which is all you need, but he was actually there to be an eyewitness to a lot of the action here. And then another interesting fact about our human author, look at Second Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy is the last book Paul writes in the New Testament. It's just probably a few months before his execution in Rome in 67 A.D. And at the end of this letter, as he starts talking about some of his personal situations, he says to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus, uh, for some context, look at verse 9. Paul says, make every effort to come to me soon because I'm not going to be around much longer. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me, gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Everybody else is finding reasons to get out of town, but Luke's a faithful guy. He's going to stay with his bud till the end. And it's interesting that in light of some events that happened in the book of Acts, look what Paul says right after that. Pick up Mark. That's John Mark who bombed out halfway through the first missionary journey. Remember? But this is a decade later or more later. Pick up Mark, who's the human author of what book? If you say First Peter, you're in trouble. Matthew, Mark, Luke. These guys are working together. Only Luke's with me physically in Rome. Pick up Mark, Timothy, when you come. Bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. So the who of the book of Acts is the human author is Luke, M.D., the divine author is God, the Holy Spirit. So uh, we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the believer might become mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Uh, that's Second Timothy, of course. Look at Hebrews 4. Uh, we allow the worst felon to testify on his own behalf if he wants to. Typically, you get lawyered up and you're told not to try to defend yourself or you're getting worse trouble. But if we allow felons who are charged of uh, heinous crimes to testify for themselves, in addition to archaeology and history, uh, I think we need to let the Scripture tell us about the Scripture. And one of my favorite statements, Hebrews 4.12, the author here, probably Barnabas, says, For the word of God is living 
and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, and of the joints in the marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, cardia today means heart, the, the, the muscle that pushes your blood around, but the heart in these contexts refers to the seat of your mind and your will, the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. Um, there, there's just something about Scripture that is, because it's inspired, it's inspiring. You can read stuff, you can read stuff from Dale Carnegie that's inspiring. You can read stuff from Chuck Swindoll that's very inspiring, but it's not inspired. But the Word of God's inspired, therefore it's inspiring. And that's why we're told, long, like new, newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word of God that you might grow in respect to your salvation. And one more, look at what Peter says about Scripture. Look at Second Peter. The book of Acts is just as much Scripture as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, the book of Acts is the second volume of a two-volume set. Luke and Acts are twins. Both are based on the other, or I guess I would say Acts follows up what Luke tells us about the ministry of Jesus. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter's an eyewitness. He gets crucified upside down in Rome for his faith. But he says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of what he did. Drop down to verse 20. But know first of all that no prophecy of Scripture, no revelation of God in any of the Scripture is a matter of one's personal interpretation. Any text without a context becomes a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. So when you hear people say, the Bible can mean anything you want it to mean, so can the Constitution, so can People Magazine. Text without a context is just a pretext. And Paul, Peter's saying here, you got to read it in context. For no prophecy of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, was ever made just from acts of the human will, distinct from supervision, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So, as one of my teachers once said, it's a wonder your fingers don't spark when you touch the pages of uh, of your uh, New Testament and Old Testament. Uh, that's the who of the book of Acts. The when of the book of Acts, uh, the book was written almost certainly in the days just before or just after Paul was released from his two-year Roman imprisonment, the first Roman imprisonment. Look at Acts, the last two verses of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28. The reason Paul was in Rome uh, here in the book of Acts is because as a Roman citizen, when he, he was charged uh, uh, of being a rebel, an insurrectionist against Roman authority in Caesarea, he appealed that charge as a Roman citizen to Caesar uh, because he had an open shut case. He was not a rebel against Rome. And so uh, their jurisprudence was Roman citizens could do that. Uh, so he went to Rome, and he had two years to wait for Nero to make time to listen to him and make his case. And after two years, either the accusers didn't show up or the, the emperor didn't have time, you were released. But you had to pay your own room and board. So we read the last, in the book of Acts ends this way, Paul ends up staying two full years in his own rented quarters. Now he's under house arrest. He can't leave the house. But he's not in a prison. He's not in a dungeon. He's able to receive people uh, and write books. You know, he writes the prison epistles, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon during that period. 
Uh, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So you'd think, man, Derek, taking a guy like Paul who loves to travel and plant churches and clip his wings, uh, God had his reasons for permitting him to be in one place for two years. If nothing else, he wrote four New Testament books that are all masterpieces. So that's a good reason. So uh, the fact that if Luke was writing this six months later or a year later after Paul had been released, he would certainly have said something about what continued after that. So this is just before the two years was going to come up or just after so that it was obvious it was going to be the two years to the full. Uh, and most scholars just assume the, Rome, the uh, Jewish authorities just didn't show up because Rome, hey, Solomon, under this circumstance where you're making a capital charge against a Roman citizen, if it's adjudicated and your charges are found to be false, in fact, the guy wasn't a traitor against Rome, guess what the Romans did to you? Capital crime against the false accusers. So it's pretty obvious that those who were very shrill against Paul back in Israel, Caesarea, had decided just not to show up. And uh, that's probably what happened. Uh, you can ask Paul about that when you see him in heaven. So that's the who, when. Let's talk about the why of the book of Acts. And uh, I love this. Uh, Luke and Acts are a two-volume set, Stephanie, written by the same human author. If you if you want to turn there, please do. But let's look at what Luke, uh, the first volume, says. I've got it here on a PowerPoint slide, so we're looking at the same thing. But in fact, the book of Acts was written for discipleship generally and apologetics. Now, Sometimes people hear the term apologetics and, and they say, well, I don't have to apologize for the faith. I'm not apologizing to anybody about my faith. Apologetics comes from the term to give a defense or an explanation. So apologetics is defending or giving explanations. And in fact, in uh, 1 Peter 3, Peter says, always be ready to make a defense for those who ask you for the reason for the hope that's within you. So it's not only optional, it's actually commanded. So Book of Acts was written to an original reader, a guy named Theophilus, and it was rapidly copied and spread throughout the church because it just laid the basic historical groundwork for our faith uh, just so that we could answer charges like, uh, you know, the, the three major charges against Christians in the first century where we were atheists, cannibals, and involved in incest. Now, how in the world could you come up with charges like that against nice apostolic Christians? Well, we were considered to be atheists because we didn't believe in their gods. We believed in the one true God. Uh, we were considered to be cannibals because they heard about this Lord's Supper thing we were having. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink, this is my blood. And they were literalists. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says. And when he says, this is my body, he's saying, this represents my body. Right? We weren't cannibals. And incest because uh, we were greeting one another with holy kisses and talking about our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that kind of got distorted and used against us. So uh, Theophilus was some kind of lower-level Roman government official. Uh, in the book of Acts, he's a new believer who needs details about the life of Christ. In the book of Acts, the, the situation has changed a little bit. But look at the way the book of uh, Luke starts, and this is the first volume of two-volume set, Luke and Acts are the two volumes. Luke says, uh, and this is about 60 A.D., he's writing this in the early phases of Paul's first Roman imprisonment, Inasmuch as many 
have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word had handed them down to us, as a lot of people have written some documents about the life of Christ, including Matthew and Mark at that point, and others. Other people remembered stuff Jesus did and wrote it down. It wasn't scripture, but it was circulated among the churches, and people just had a historical memory of a lot of things he said. So inasmuch as there are documents floating around, including Matthew and Mark, uh, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. And where does his gospel begin? The announcement of the virgin conception, uh, uh, interaction with Zacharias in the temple, and Elizabeth and, and Mary. And one reason I think Luke has a lot of details about Elizabeth and Mary as an example, the other guys don't have, is because he investigated this carefully. Mary was a leading light in the early church, and he would have talked to her before he wrote his gospel. Having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in an organized manner, and then... Theophilus is a new Christian. Luke is not his real close friend yet, so he refers to him the way we would refer to the Honorable Tom Cole, our congressman, in, in, in writing. Uh, most excellent Theophilus. That's the way you address government officials. So that you might know the exact truth about the things you've been taught and that, that you now believe. So that's the prologue to Volume 1. We're studying Volume 2. Look at the way it starts back in Chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, who was uh, the original reader of volume one? Theophilus. So, Laura, you look at the beginning of the second volume, it says the first account, you guys call it the Gospel of Luke, I composed Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he ascended to heaven. The Gospel of Luke ends with the ascension. The book of Acts starts with the... Ascension, after this prologue, basically. After he, he, by the Holy Spirit, had given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these, to the apostles, he presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So the why of the book of Acts is, uh, and by the way, he doesn't call him most excellent Theophilus. See that, Russell? He just calls him Theophilus. I got a feeling between 60 A.D., more or less, when he's writing the first volume, to most excellent Theophilus, that two years later, he just calls them Theophilus. They're friendly enough. They've had enough interaction that it's like me. You don't have to call me Dr. McCoy, just got a Ph.D. Just call me Dr. Brad. That'll be fun. Yeah. Um, you know, they've gotten friendly enough. He doesn't need to use the official title, most excellent Theophilus. But he still needs information, especially as a Roman official, who's going to hear all your Christian friends are atheist cannibals and they're involved in incest. Well, actually, no. This is what actually is going on, if you want to know. Okay. So we've seen the who, the when, the why. Now, the how. How can we keep track of the storyline of the book of Acts? I mean, it's a big book, right? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to give you this memory aid. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. So let's walk through the first 18 chapters, because next week, Lord willing, we're going to jump right into 18, verse 12, right where we left off. What happens in chapter 1, Russell? Jesus ascends. Jesus ascends. Book of Luke ends with the ascension. Book of Acts starts with the ascension, right? The death of Christ, three days later the resurrection, 40 days later the ascension. 
What happens in chapter 2? Establishment of the New Testament church 10 days after the ascension. So you got this kind of diagram here. That's upper room discourse just before the arrest. Jesus tells the guys about the spiritual dynamics of spirituality. But with the death of Christ, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He didn't just die before us. He died for us because Christ died for our sins, including the worst thing you've ever done. Um, we don't have to die in our sins through faith in him. So he dies as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Three days later, what happens? Literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection. And Kathy, what happens 40 days after the resurrection? The ascension, right? And as Acts chapter 1, what happens 10 days after the ascension? Establishment of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. In uh, chapter 3, uh, Peter and John heal a guy who's a professional beggar in front of the temple, and everybody in Jerusalem knew who this guy was. And uh, not only does he get physical deliverance, he receives Christ. So this would have been a big sign to the city that this was the real deal. Chapter 4, unleashing a persecution. Somebody once said, no good deed goes unpunished. And uh, when you look at church history, that's in a, in a sense. When you look at the regenerate believers, that's kind of true. No matter what we do, it tends to get misunderstood, distorted. Uh, chapter 5, sin in the church. As James will tell you, the only thing worse than... Persecution against the church is corruption inside the church. And we tend to shoot ourselves in the foot a lot. And uh, I don't like to talk about people's dirty laundry, but my dear wife probably read it on Facebook, but the, the, the minister of the First Baptist Church, Ardmore, has been uh, indicted for forging checks and stealing money, embezzlement from the church, thinking, really? I mean, there's got to be a better way to steal money than that. I mean, that's just, and I'm real. I mean, I just that blew my mind, man. Blew my categories. I've been a professional Christian now for 34 years, and I got to tell you, about 15% of the guys who've been called or at least decided to become preachers are weird. <laughs> just so you know. Uh, yeah, we're looking at Jesus is alive as head of his bride. Uh, is, chapter 6, influence the devoted deacons. We had a physical issue, making sure the widows were fed in a timely manner. It wasn't working well. The apostles were told, fix it. They said, hey, we got to devote ourselves to the word and prayer, but we're going to have deacons take care of that, not because we're too important to do it, but that's not our job. We need somebody else to help us, and so we need everybody involved uh, in uh uh, making the church work, not just the people on the platform for worship or teaching and preaching. Chapter 7, Stephen stoned to death in Jerusalem. Just a few months after the crucifixion, he's the first Christian martyr after the resurrection. And he uh, his offense was he basically summarized the Old Testament from a Christian point of view uh, in chapter 7, and uh, he was stoned to death, which is a horrific way to die. Chapter 8, abroad, Philip uh, goes to Samaria, where no self-righteous Jew would ever go, and in the Gaza, and he witnesses to people, and they hear about Jesus, and they believe. And so we find out that Jesus, Blanche, is the Jewish Messiah, but he's also definitely the Savior of the world, and Gentiles can believe in him and be saved just as much as Jews. God doesn't make distinctions like that. Chapter 9, we've got Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul to 
What was he, what was he going to Damascus for? To arrest and kill Christians. And then he sees the light. And he later changes his name to Paul. And, and we see much of the book of Acts about him. And he writes 13 New Testament letters. That's chapter 9. Now chapter 10, we have the importation of salvation to Cornelius. You know who Cornelius was? He's a Roman soldier. He was a Roman helicopter pilot back in the first century. And that was hard because you had to pedal the rotors, you know. You had, to, you had to be really good shape. You had to be like, just like Lance Armstrong on steroids, pardon the expression, so you could pedal hard enough to make the rotors go around, man. That's how hard that was. Now, I mean, Cornelius was a Roman soldier, and the Romans were occupying the whole region, so Romans weren't necessarily real popular with the average Jew. But this is a guy who really was interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We call Gentiles who were interested in knowing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God-fearers. And, in fact, uh, he's told, hey, Peter's going to come tell you what the deal is. And Peter, in fact, let's look at that. Look at chapter 10 real quick. One of my favorite little sections in the book of Acts. Look at Acts 10. And this blew Peter's categories because he was a good Jewish boy and he didn't hang around Gentiles because they had spiritual cooties. And even though Jesus tried to free him from all that, he didn't really understand it yet. And God does several unique things to convince him it's okay to go uh, tell this guy how to get saved, uh, even though he's a Gentile. And uh, look at Acts 10.39. This is Peter speaking to Cornelius his family and his his uh, some of his uh, buds from the military. It's a large group of people here. This guy would have been living in a nice big mansion there in Caesarea. Uh, Peter says, We are witnesses of all the things that Jesus did, both in the land of the Jews right around uh, the whole area of, of Israel and specifically in Jerusalem. And they put him on they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible not to everybody all the time, but to certain witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, the apostles and their associates, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So Russell, there's no doubt this really happened. This wasn't one guy thinks he heard a voice or something. This is 40 days of intense interaction with a physically resurrected Savior that they knew had been crucified and brutalized. Um, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that Jesus is the one who's the issue and the issuer of eternal life, who's been appointed by God the Father as judge of the living and the dead. And then his bottom line is, of him, of Jesus Christ, all the prophets, Cornelius, that you've been studying in synagogue, bear witness that through his name, who and what he is, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's God's equal rights amendment. No one's so bad they can't have this. No one's so good they don't need it. Of him, all the Old Testament, and that's all they've got at that point. None of the books have been written in the New Testament at this point in about 35 A.D. when this event's happening. Bear witness that through his name, somebody's name is who they are and what they stand for, their person and their program. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ receives forgiveness of sins. So, boom, you think everybody's got to be happy about that. We've got, you know, 20 or 30 Gentiles or believers, and he's a big shot in the military. He's got to be great. No, when the folks in Jerusalem find out, they said, how dare you go have a meal with a Gentile? What are you talking about? Don't you know, spiritual cootie time. 
And so in chapter 11, Peter has to verify, validate the fact that God had let him do this and that, in fact, Gentiles. In other words, there's no pre-qualification. The assumption was, hey, the assumption apparently was Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. This is the life of Christ. In the Old Testament, we were promised a Messiah, and the Jewish people were craving and waiting for the Messiah. Most of them missed it, as it turned out. But the assumption was, okay, Jesus, for Jewish minds, was in the aftermath of the resurrection of Christ and his ascension. It's kind of like, okay, I can understand how a Jewish person, someone who's connected in, drafted in, could believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved. But dirty Greco-pagan unbelievers, they can't just believe and be saved. Surely Surely they've got to commit to Judaism, and then they can believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved. And in fact, that's not the way it works. Christianity is not a sect of Judaism. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. And the Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. God so loved the world, he gave the Son, that whosoever believeth in him. So very important stuff there. Chapter 12, execution of James. Stephen was the first martyr. James was the first apostle to be executed for the faith in Jerusalem. And yet, and I always like to say this, you know, in Acts chapter 12, you read about James being arrested, the next day being executed. And it says when the powers that be saw us making points with the Romans, the local Jewish officials arrested Peter. So they arrested James, Stephanie. Next day, kill him, and they make uh, points for that. So they arrest Peter one day. What are they going to do the next day? They're going to kill him too. But the night, that night, there's a miraculous earthquake. Angel comes up, uh, releases Peter. He's supernaturally released from prison. In fact, he interrupts the prayer meeting that's going all night to pray for his deliverance, and they can't believe it actually happened. But I've often thought, okay, I wonder what James's mother or wife or kids thought. Okay, it's kind of like, hey, my dad, my husband, uh, my best friend gets arrested, James, and then, and we pray for him probably all night, and the next day he gets executed. Then they arrest Peter. Uh, uh, in, within a week or so, probably, and he gets miraculously saved. What's going on here? That's not fair. Well, the answer to that, I think, is God's purpose for James is a lot different, was a lot different than his purpose for Peter. He's not going to give you the same amount. Lori's not going to give you as many days as he's going to give Maxine, because Maxine's going to live to be at least 115, and you probably won't make 115. Just so you're going to have to get done what God wants you to get done more efficiently than she she's doing that, right? But that's a good lesson there, I think. Uh, Jesus is alive as, chapter 13, first missionary journey. Antioch sends out missionaries. First missionary journey looks like this. We leave Antioch in Syria, right there, and Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, the guy who writes the Gospel of Mark, go overland to the coast and they sail across to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is from, preaching the Gospel, and then they sail up here to modern-day Turkey. And what do they do? What happens when they get to Perga, of Pamphylia? What happens? Anybody remember? Yeah, John Mark decides to go to Jerusalem, which is where Mommy lives. He apparently gets tired of the missionary life after about a month. And so he goes away. And so Paul and Barnabas go to the Galatian churches, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. They visit those, backtrack, and come back home. So that's what happens there. Now, look at Acts 13. We read Peter's message, 
presentation to Cornelius in chapter 10 a moment ago. Now let's look at what Paul says in the synagogue of Antioch, not of Antioch, Syria, but Antioch of Pisidia there during the first missionary journey. Sounds a whole lot like the same basic message. Now, uh, just for lack of time, I won't go into all the detail that Paul does to get to the punchline. He's talking to a synagogue. Jewish people know Old Testament history. He just surveys Old Testament history for them. But his bottom line is, verse 38, Therefore, in light of all this Jewish history, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, talking about Jesus the Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes. Is that a theme? Everyone who believes. Believing is a rational act. It's not a meritorious work. It's active, receptive trust. But to the one who does not work, but who, but who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith will be reckoned as righteousness. Let it be known to you, brethren, through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What's so important about him? Just give us a better, better list of rules. He died for your sin debt. He paid uh, everything that could keep Ron Miller out of heaven, and that's a lot. Jesus died and paid for. And he was resurrected to validate the saving power of his death because a dead Savior is not going to get you from Oklahoma to heaven. Through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that's plural. That's all y'all. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. And the law of Moses can, can do that. All the law of Moses did was show you you needed a Savior because nobody could keep the law. Not even Billy Graham or your favorite Bible teacher, Christian professional this week. And it will probably change. It changes a lot with people. But yeah, I always love that statement. Now, Jesus is alive as chapter 14 is right there. Antioch, uh, I guess that's 13, sends out missionaries. Chapter 14, synagogues attack Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they leave Antioch, they go to Iconium, they go to Lystra, they go to Derby. In Lystra, Paul gets stoned to death. They drag him out of the city and then he miraculously comes back. I, I think that that was a miracle of resuscitation like Lazarus. Some people say he was almost dead, but not quite, but God let him recover. Something special happened there for sure. Chapter 15, love chapter 15, it's called the Jerusalem Council. In the aftermath of the First missionary journey where Paul is going directly to Gentiles and telling them all they got to do is believe and get saved. There's a big problem because some of the legalistic Christians in Jerusalem are saying that's not possible. They got to become Jews first and they can believe in the Jewish Messiah. We already saw that issue in chapter 10 and 11, but now they said let's have a big powwow. Let's get all the apostles together and make sure we're on the same page. So Paul and Barnabas and all the apostles are meeting there in Jerusalem and they correct heresy over the uh, issue of whether or not Gentiles have to become Jews before they become Christians. Now, ironically, 2,000 years later, some Christians think that Jewish people ethnically have to become Gentiles before they can become Christians. It's just the opposite thing, but neither one works. Uh, that's heresy corrected. Slash honest disagreement. What happens at the end of chapter 15 when Paul and Barnabas say, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if we went back and revisited the churches we planted in what Brad's calling the first missionary journey? And what happens? Paul says, yeah, let's go. And Barnabas says, you know what? Let's take, let's take Mark with us again. Let's give him another chance. And what happens? Paul says, you know what? I can't trust him. I don't think he's credible. Down the road, maybe. What did we read about in 2 Timothy when he says, 15 years later, uh, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark. 
He's useful to me now. I totally trust him now. But real Christians who love the Lord can disagree on policy and personnel issues without either one of them being evil or having a special agenda or a secret plan. It is, Paul said, I can't trust him. You know, he blew it. Uh, it's only been a year later. Uh, he's got a display that he's uh, consistent enough that we can trust him. And Barnabas, who's number one, his cousin, we know that from Colossians, uh, in a reference there. But also he tends to give people the benefit of the doubt. Barnabas is just an encourager. He said, no, let's try him again. It'll be good for him. And so they disagree, and they go separate ways, don't they? So Paul starts his Europe evangelized second missionary journey like this. Rather than, and, and which is a good thing, because Paul and Barnabas argue about who should go on the second missionary journey, and the original plan was for them to go back to Cyprus and back to the churches they planted, that'd be all they do. But after they decide, no, we can't work together on this, Barnabas, you can work with Mark, I'm going to work with Silas, what happens is that Paul and Silas go overland to the Galatian churches, they pick up Timothy, and then, then they end up going from Asia into Europe, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, etc. Uh, that's the second missionary journey. According to church history, when Paul and Silas leave Antioch that way, Russell, Barnabas and John Mark go back to Cyprus, Caesarea, Jerusalem, and across North Africa. And in fact, there was a strong Christian church by the late first century across North Africa all the way to the Straits of Gibraltar. And that existed until uh, the early 7th century because, as you know, um, Muhammad lived from 570 to 632, and by about 700, just this side of 700 A.D., they had evangelized North Africa and eradicated the Christian church there. But the Christian church that existed there for 600 years was uh, planted by this disagreement. So God can cause all things to work together for good. Um, as you may remember, ten weeks ago we were in Athens and we saw apathy to the gospel among the philosophers in Athens, and then we saw good things happening in Corinth, and in fact Paul spends 18 months teaching the scripture to Christians in Corinth at a church called Corinth Bible Fellowship. And uh, Lord willing, next week we'll pick up there in uh, chapter 18, verse 12. But here's my bottom line. Nine weeks ago, the last time I was in Acts, in this morning, we saw at the end of uh, Paul's mission uh, ministry as it was described in Acts 18 there in Corinth, that routine faithfulness isn't, for Christians, isn't routine, easy, or automatic, but it should be. And it, it, it wasn't just Paul's routine faithfulness but a lot of different people, including the folks praying in the home church in Antioch that made all these good things possible. And then uh, I really I made this up all by myself, and so I thought this was pretty cool. Now, this, this is an old saying in baseball. I didn't make this up. But in baseball, they say uh, that really great baseball players make difficult plays look routine. Okay, That's the old saying. And then I always thought, because I was not a very good baseball player, not so great baseball players make routine plays look difficult. Okay, so I thought, okay, there you have it. Who's that? 
really a good baseball player, man. He's awesome. Mike Trout, you kidding? He's amazing. So he's a guy who makes difficult plays look routine. And some of us made... <laughs> man, I actually thought I looked good in those glasses, man. They look like goggles, man. They look like I'm going uh, into outer space. And can you believe it? The hat, I mean, that would like... Uh, it was it was craziness there, man. I actually thought I looked good when I took that picture. It's crazy, but I'll end here. You know what? Uh, we're we're just starting a, a short study in the book of Jude and uh, on Wednesday nights. And Jude, like Paul, a lot of times refers to his addressees as bond servants of Jesus Christ. And the reality is, Kathy, every believer is a servant of Jesus Christ. The question is not whether you're a servant, because he is your Lord and Master. The question is, are you a good servant or a lazy servant? Are you a faithful servant or an inconsistent servant? So, uh, you know, routine faithfulness, the problem with routine faithfulness, if you get real consistent, people stop noticing you. The reason that we've noticed that we don't have a newsletter today is because Jenny puts out a world-class newsletter, usually just before the first of every month, filled with captivating, interesting human interest stories, photos, trivia, acronyms from Pastor Brad, and everything you need to know about what's going on in the church. She does this so perfectly every month that the one time because she's putting uh, uh, her husband's new business together, and I hope you appreciate it, Stan, and making it work, is she's actually going to be two days late this time. And so we notice that because it wasn't perfect. If you're consistent, nobody notices you after a while because they just take you for granted. And so you can't let occasionally being hero of the week or me patting you on the head or Homer telling how great you are or whatever, being the only motivator. Because if that's what you're depending on, if you really get consistent, you're going to disappear. Somebody shows up once in 10 years, man, we have a party. If you come every week to everything, we kind of get used to that. For Homer to show up, it's no big deal. He comes to everything, you know. And he likes most of it too, which is cool, you know. Uh, So routine faithfulness has to be motivated beyond something, uh, beyond just you getting warm fuzzies from the teammates because they eventually, when Mike Trout catches a ball in the outfield, they don't go, wow, I can't believe he actually, and just a can of corn, you know, they don't go, wow, he caught the corn, caught the, caught the corn, caught the ball, you know, uh, he's going to catch it 100% of the time, you know, so it's no big deal. So you've got to have a deeper motivation. I wonder what that is. We call it abiding in Christ. You've got to recognize and respond to the one who has saved you. So you're doing it for him when you're going back and doing the nursery duty, or teaching your Sunday school class, or doing whatever, cleaning up after a potluck or whatever it is. And if Pastor Brad doesn't notice and tell you how great you are, although I try to, but if I miss that, that's okay, because you're not doing it for Pastor Brad, or Danny, or Ron, you're doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So you might think, well, golly, how can I do this thing? Uh, You know what? We list these people every week. You know, and because it's there every week, nobody ever reads it. Plus, I have usually have some typographical errors, so that's another reason you probably start reading it. But uh, who's our youth minister slash music minister? That'd be James. Uh, nobody's asked you to sing on the worship team. We don't know you can sing, sister. Tell somebody. It'd probably tell James would be good. Hey, I'd like to sing sometime. You know, uh, C director Gene Shallot. Now, if you if you want to volunteer to be a teacher on Sunday mornings, or a helper, uh, find Gene, 
have Gene sit down. Because if you volunteer for CE, Christian Ed, she's going to faint. So have her sit down, have some smelling salts handy, and say, Gene, I want to break something to you. I want to volunteer for the teaching rotation. And after she comes to, you can explain in more detail, right? Now, Blanche, at Wassail Night, we found out you're a good pianist. So even though Janice is one of those people who's so consistent, we don't even see her anymore. She just blends in the scenery, you know, uh, like the Holy Spirit, you know. Uh, but we know you're only one heartbeat away, right? So just be aware of that. Anybody else play the keyboards well? I'm, Tommy's better than he'll tell you. Uh, Maxine Blastone, you know, one of these Fridays, she may not be able to fold the, the bulletins. She may need help. You know, if you want to help her fold bulletins, that'd be good. But uh, all these folks are kind of ministry leaders. So if you want to be routinely faithful in an area, and maybe preaching and teaching or singing isn't your thing, there's a lot of things you can do to help. And if you none of these specific things jump out at you, just talk to any of the elders. We'll, we'll find something for you to do around here. And if nothing else, you can wash my car every other Monday morning. And that would be... That would be greatly appreciated. You know, John F. Kennedy in his first inaugural said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You know, we're in a sense, we're reading church history as we go through the book of Acts. It's holy history. It's inspired. It's discipleship material. But it is us reading about what other people did. I would say, hey, this is your time to make some church history. You can make church history in 2016. But you're going to have to get off your blessed assurance to make it happen. Ouch. Let's have a prayer. Lord, I thank you for the book of Acts and just how exciting it is to read about our uh, first generation history as, as a Christian church and the great things you did because these folks really believed and really lived out the gospel. And I pray that all of us would be motivated to do that in our world, in our little segment of the world, whether it be at Halliburton or Cameron University or at Duncan Public Schools, or at uh, Payne's Jewelry, wherever it, is we, wherever it is we trudge to go to work on Mondays, or uh, whether it's in our home, as a husband, a father, uh, as a deacon, an elder, Sunday school teacher, or just as a plugged-in positive TBF. Help us to make some church history to your glory. I pray that more of us would be routinely faithful, so much so that... Uh, People don't even notice us doing stuff that's really important just because we do it consistently and help us to be motivated, not by other people telling us how great we are, but just strictly by focusing in and responding to and serving and living for our Master, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.